Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. When then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out my eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by, by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of God. Hello, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, before we start, I just have two announcements I want to give. And in the slide above me, uh, it's one of the classes that we're offering for the next seven weeks. In the next seven weeks, we have a discipleship course that we are doing that I'm going to be teaching. And here are uh, the themes and the topics outlined there. And then we have today uh, starting stewardship, financial stewardship, uh, a course that Pastor Paul is going to be leading for seven weeks. So the discipleship course is going to be on Wednesdays at 8 o'clock. And the financial stewardship course is every Sunday here. And I believe that the financial stewardship course is all connected and it's sequential. So if you want to start, please talk to Pastor Paul. And if you have to miss a week or two, I would say please talk to him so that you are keeping up. And I put up those topics in case that maybe your Wednesdays are busy, but you had a specific topic that you really wanted to go over. And then so you can especially make time for those weeks. But I do hope that we all take... Um, just the opportunity to come to every course and every class that we're offering for the next seven weeks. The next one, next announcement I wanted to mention is that we have been training and we have been um, praying for and we have already elected our deacons. And so we have four deacon elects that we have been praying for. And I just want to mention them one more time so that our congregation can keep them in prayer. Um, it's not an easy route to be a deacon. Uh, it's not even a sometimes uh, a thanked route. It's a very thankless job a lot of times being a deacon. Ask any deacon. But ultimately being a deacon or any kind of ordained position in the church isn't so that you get thanked. Uh, although, although it's nice sometimes. It's nice. But ultimately... The desire to build the name of Jesus Christ in the church should be the main um, reason why we become a deacon or any kind of um, 
leader in the church. So please continue to pray that the deacon Lex will have the ultimate desire to build the name of Christ in the church and not their own names, not their own reputations. So please keep the four in your prayers. And I hope that uh, in, in about a month's time, we'll all come and celebrate the ordination of these new four deacons. Let's pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So in today's message, I want to go over uh, three basic points. And the first one is to know. The second one is to twist. And the third one is to do. To know, to twist, and to do. So we'll start with to know. And the phrase to know in the biblical sense has a very deep sense that goes beyond our proclivities to say that we know someone perhaps when we want to name drop. It's a thing. You're talking about someone, and let's say it's a celebrity, and then someone else comes and joins the conversation and says, oh, that person, I know them. And then they proceed to say something about how they saw this person here and this, did this and that. And then you're like in your head, you don't know them. We all know someone like that. Anyway, but um, if you ask me if I knew Francis Chan, I would say no. But I have met him once. Backstage, I was backstage waiting to go out with the praise team. And all of a sudden, this Chinese man with very huge hands taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, man. And he asked me if I knew what John Piper spoke about a few minutes ago when he was on stage. And that person was Francis Chan. And I said, yeah, I do. And so we chatted. Um, and by the time, we talked about 10 to 20 minutes, and by the time Francis Chan got on stage, he used what I told him to make fun of John Piper. So I wouldn't necessarily say I know Francis Chan, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to get to know him. Reverend Chan, if you're listening, my email is eugenekim at cgsnj.org. Again, that's eugenekim at cgsnj.org. Um, and you could say, do you know, Pastor Eugene, do you know Tim Keller? And I would say no. Uh, I did have an opportunity to take a program with him as a mentor, but then at, at a certain point, uh, but then I was called here to this church as a pastor, so I couldn't uh, get that mentorship class with him. There's about four or five people that sat with him on a regular, and um, I had that. It was, it was kind of a crazy opportunity, but so I didn't get to do that. But again, Dr. Keller, if you're listening, my email is uh, Eugene Kim. At, okay, but in the biblical sense, when we say no, and when, when we use the word no, it means that we have this deep, and personal relationship. You just don't say you know something just because you want a name drop. And Paul starts us here by saying, in the beginning, you did not know God. You didn't know him. You could say you know him and you could name drop all you want, but you didn't know him. And because you didn't know God, you were slaves to all these things that were not God. And that's how Paul starts out this passage. 
But in verse 9, he goes, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. And when you read this at first, it may sound like Paul is fumbling with his words and saying, Oh, wait, mm, I kind of meant this. No, I mean, but he's not. Now that you know God, but more importantly, God knows you. You know, it's one thing to say that you know a high-profile person. But it's another thing entirely to have that person say that they know you. And God is saying, I know you. And if this is the case, Paul is saying, how could you turn back to the time you didn't know God? You know, I have genetically bad teeth. Um, I think it runs in the family, but I know for sure my father doesn't have good teeth. And I would go to the dentist as a kid, and the dentist would look at my teeth, and he would say, wow, you must love candy. And I was kind of offended by that because I actually don't like candy at all. But uh, he's like, you must love candy. But he was commenting about how my teeth are all rotten, things like that. And, and I would just be like, What? Um, and so uh, I would need to go to the dentist quite often, and yeah, no matter how, many, how much you brush. I don't know if any of you can relate to me, but no matter how much you brush, floss, um, and gargle, rinse, right, use, use Listerine, um, teeth just doesn't stay that way. Eat calcium, you drink milk, do whatever you can do, right? Um, you drink one cup of coffee, and then your teeth become all green. Anyway. But while I was a pastor in training, and that took about seven years, it's longer than most other pastors in training. In Korean, we have another word for it. Uh, but while I was a pastor in training here in Pilgrim Church, our mother church, I actually didn't get one cavity. I didn't have insurance, so if I did get a cavity, it would have put me in serious debt. Uh, in the middle of my pastor in training kind of uh, season, my sister found this Groupon to go to a dentist. And so I decided to take it. And I went to this uh, Eastern European dentist, and she checked my teeth. And while she, she was checking my teeth, she just kept on calling me metal man. You're a metal man, right? And then it was because I had all these fillings, and there was all this metal. So she kept on calling me metal man throughout the whole thing. I was like, is it because I'm a Groupon patient? You're just making fun of me? What's going on? But, uh, and now when she looked, she's like, you're fine. You can go metal man. And then so I left. And um, now I'm no longer in pastor and training, of course, as you all know. But uh, recently my teeth started hurting. And then when my teeth started hurting, I remembered how the Israelites, in their uh, desert wilderness journey for 40 years, their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out at all. And then I realized God had protected me during my time in the wilderness, and I was so thankful. But I could also see how people could have complained. It's like as soon as the 40 years is over, you step out into the promised land, and your shoes just disintegrate, right? And your clothes are like, oh my gosh, right? And that kind of thing. But my tooth recently started to hurt. And it, it was cavity. I felt like it's a cavity, 
It's like, oh man, I hate going to the dentist. But CGS is so, so good to me. I have, I have this dental program now. I said, I should go. I talked to Sung. He's like, Sung is like, when are you ever going to use this? Go. And then so I go. Um, and it would be funny. It would be funny if I would complain to God, right? And tell him, man, God, why is this happening to me? It was way better when I was a slave in Egypt, when I had no freedom. But that's the kind of attitude that you see here that Paul is saying. Is this the kind of attitude that you have? You know, I did go to the dentist, and I, they, they asked me why I was there. I filled out some forms, and I said, I have, some, I have a few cavities. And he, he started looking at my teeth, and he starts poking and, like, really pressing. He's like, are you trying to hurt me? But he's, like, pressing down with his instruments. And then he took x-rays, about four or five, and then he could, so he's like, I can't find any cavities. And that's weird. So about 10 to 20 minutes later, he keeps on poking and looking, and then he found this hairline fracture in my uh, molar. So <clears throat> I realized apparently I clench too hard when I lift weights. So I crack my tooth, oh, you know, that kind of thing. So I didn't have a cavity, so praise the Lord. Um, anyway, uh, the point is God is saying that not only do you know me, but I know you. I know you. God is the one that's going out calling you by name and saying, Christine, Daniel, Jim, whatever, Edward, and saying, I know you. You're mine. And then how can you turn back away from him to these worthless idols, to the elementary principles of the world? And he goes, you even started to observe Jewish holidays. And you're not even Jewish. What are you doing? And in verse 11, Paul is stating here what seems to be very close to regret spending so much of his energy on them. To twist. To twist. Verses 12 to 16, Paul is kind of talking about how is it, how is it that, that it became so attractive to you this false gospel, these false doctrines that you would even hate me. You know what happens when you get duped into believing and following something other than the gospel? Number one, your theology becomes twisted. In verse 12, Paul says, become like me. And it's whenever Paul says, become like me in like 2 Timothy or 1 Corinthians 10, it's usually about a certain ethical and fundamental Christian value that he had or values that he had in mind. And he's saying, imitate me, become like me. But here, what is he talking about? He says, become like me as I had become like you. He abandoned the law and became like the Gentiles that they were who do not have the law. So now are you going to go back to the law that I abandoned to get to you in the first place? Verse 12 in this whole Galatians series, verse 12 is the first explicit command 
that the Galatians received from Paul. And it's important that we stop here and we listen because it's designed to help not just the Galatians, but it's designed to help us from a twisted theology, a theology of me, a theology where I need to get blessed. I need to enter into a certain place. I must get this and do that. And when you go on from verse 12 and 13, 14, you go to verse 15 and 16, it's about a twisted relationship. When Hannah, Juven, and I went to Manchester, we stopped by a, a place, a library slash museum, where they had the oldest parchment of the Bible in existence. And we were so excited. You had to go through a bookstore, up some stairs, up some outside stairs, go through a hallway, and the Juven stopped to take a picture of this old window, just the window. You're like, okay. But so we stopped, and then we're going. And then we enter into this room, and then this is a tiny fragment of the New Testament. But as um, Ben Jack, he was our host, he was taking me through. He's like, did you know that F.F. Bruce taught in this? This is the John Rylands Library. And I was like, oh, my goodness, F.F. Bruce. And, of course, Jubin and Hannah being huge F.F. Uh, Bruce, Bruce fans, they were just jumping up and down ecstatic, too. But anyway, F.F. Uh, Bruce, um, he taught in the University of Manchester, wrote a lot of books. And if you ever go to seminary, you'll read all his books. But to the John Ryan's library is where all his books got published. He is the one that uh, kind of theorized that Paul, the sickness that's being talked about was Paul probably contracted a disease when he got down into that area, the land of Galatia. And it was probably malaria. So when our team, we went to Africa once, um, we asked them, do we need to take uh, malaria pills? And then the, our hosts are like, no, 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 you don't need any malaria pills. And we're like, mm, we, we don't believe you. So we actually went and we got malaria pills and we, got, we made sure that we wouldn't get malaria while we were there. Um, but he theorized that Paul probably took malaria. But back then, unlike today, if you contract malaria, you can't just take pills. You can't just get better with medicine. Um, you had to go to a place where there is no mosquitoes. So you could get sick, contract malaria, but then you would have to go on higher ground. And you have to go up the hill. You have to stay in the mountains. And in fact, that is where we stayed in Africa. We went up a 12-hour drive into a higher altitude, and there were no mosquitoes. But it's exactly what um, Paul did. He went up higher altitude. And so that's where he met these people in Galatia. And so because of whatever it is, whether it was malaria, whatever, some other illness, we don't know for sure. It doesn't say in the Bible, but because of an illness, he had gotten detoured and went to this place where he met the Galatians. And this is the letter that he is writing to. They took care of him as if he were an angel. And it says as if he were Christ himself. They took care of him like he was an angel. As if he was Jesus Christ himself. And now you want to distance yourself from me. You would have given me your own eyeballs if I had asked 
I could have shot someone on fifth. No, that's a different, uh, that's a different Bible. But you would have given me your own eyeballs and you would have done anything to help me. And now I'm the enemy because I told you the truth. And somehow people found slavery so attractive that they would not only reject the gospel, but they would reject the one that brought it to them, someone they called a dear friend and a brother. And you don't even have to be Christian or even part of a church to be able to relate to that statement. In verse 17 to 18, he's talking about you're getting seduced by people. They use the Bible to flatter you, to make much of you. And in the end, what happens is you make much of them. These false teachers are just doing it, using biblical texts without biblical theology to lift you up. But it's false. It's not solid ground. It's going to collapse. And one of the things that they're trying to do is turn your allegiance aside from the one who has taught you the true gospel in the first place. You know, it's good to be zealous. And I suppose they were zealous. And then Paul says, they want to shut you out. You know what that, that means? That it was like a frat hazing mentality. It's like you just want to join this social club so bad because it's so exclusive. The zeal and passion might seem good, and that's what attracts people, even our young people today. When you take something and you make it exclusive, only a few people can join, and it's so hard to join. But you have to evaluate the zeal. You have to evaluate the passion. Why are these groups so passionate? What are they passionate and zealous for? You have to evaluate the zeal because you have, that's the only way you can evaluate its purpose. Hitler was zealous. Hitler was zealous. There are some pastors who are also zealous and passion, passionate, but they have questionable motives and purpose. That's why everything, Paul is saying, everything must be tested by the gospel. They want you to separate from us so that you can be loyal to them. They are much more concerned with you giving your pledge to them and giving your allegiance to them than finding the truth and going into the true riches and depths of the gospel. We should be zealous, but with the right purpose and right motives. In verse 19, Paul is saying, my dear children, the anguish he feels, he is saying, is he is using this metaphor uh, of childbirth, the most excruciating thing he can think of, which is kind of a weird metaphor because he's not a mom. But he relates and refers to the anguish that he's feeling like childbirth, but he goes on. It's like it's if you believed your child was, you pushed so hard and there was so much pain and so much drama. And then you believe your child was finally out, but then the doctor comes back to you and goes, no, the baby's not out yet. You have to push again. And it's like this anguish that he feels. Like, I'm not even sure if you were born or not. It may be a weird metaphor, but Paul continues on in the next passage we'll do next week. But it shows you the deep anguish that Paul is in. Paul wishes he could be there in person 
that so if I, at least if I'm there in person, I could decide. And he decides with this hopeful, and you could hear the hope in his writing. Hopefully, I could even change my tone. Hopefully, I could pray with you. Because to twist the truth brings misery as we abandon the freedom of the gospel for slavery. And finally, to do. To do what? As gospel ministers, to do gospel work or gospel ministry. And figuring out what to do, we have to go back to the first command that Paul gives in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. I have become as you are. Number one, we have to recognize that in gospel ministry, we have to be culturally adaptable. You know, you don't have to dress and act exactly in a specific way. And we have to say, if it's not a gospel mandate, then we as a church are flexible. What do I mean by that? And this is a true story. Uh, there, in this one church, not our church, because our church is awesome, but in this one church, there was a woman who became enraged, went up to the front desk of the office of the church to complain that the pastor was inappropriately dressed for church. How dare he dress in slacks and a jacket and tie and shirt? He should be wearing a full suit. Notice what I am wearing, right? <laughs> anyway, um, no, it wasn't me. Um, and in the, it was a Korean church, and in the Korean church, they call it two-piece, two-piece, right? So it's like this two-piece outfit. And it's like, what are you talking about? And it's a swimwear. But a two-piece, meaning the color was different for pants and jacket. It wasn't like a matching suit. Enraged, enraged, because that's just terrible. But Paul did that exactly with the Galatians. You know, Paul had a certain way of living. He had customs and traditions that you follow every day, every week. But when he went to the Galatians, he lived with them. He ate with them. He played with them. He joked with them. He was in their world and lived it, even though that was not his world. He entered as far as he could so that he could present the gospel to them. And his entering into their culture did not actually change the message of the gospel. And that's how we have to be as gospel ministers. We need to be culturally adaptable without, um, without foregoing the truth of the gospel. Number two, become as I am. Secondly, be like me. And you can ask, only ask someone to be like you, like Paul did, if you've truly opened up your life so that it is imitable. And this is what Paul did. You can even see in his writings that he's still completely open. And he shares his heart to the people that he's ministering to. You know, words alone do not make you a good gospel minister. You cannot do gospel ministry with only words. People have to be able to see your heart and your life. They have to see how you handle the rough times with the good. They have to see how Christ is affecting your day-to-day -day life. And even if there is hardship, 
There is joy. Even if there are flaws, there's honesty. And thirdly and lastly, to be gospel ministers, to do gospel work, to do gospel ministries, we are to look for opportunities in suffering and hardship. It was because of an illness Paul got to first preach the gospel to the Galatians. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. That wasn't the plan, but thank God that it did happen. Gospel ministry is not easy, but the joy set before you makes it worth it. There's a story about a Christian woman who was always bright, cheerful, and optimistic, but she was confined to her room because of an illness. So one time, and she lived in this um, fifth, uh, she lived in the fifth floor of this apartment building, and it was an old, rundown building. One time, uh, her friend decided to visit her, but decided to bring another woman. Another woman. She had great wealth, but she was kind of curious. So by the time they got there, uh, the woman that was brought over would say, "Wow, this building is filthy and dark." And her friend commented. It gets a little better higher up, and so they climbed up the stairs to the second floor. And as they're climbing up the stairs, she would remark again, "Wow, the second floor is filthy and it's dark." And then her friend replied, "It gets a little better higher up." And they arrived at the third floor, and then the woman goes, "Things look even worse here," and the friend replied, "It gets better." Higher up, and finally they reached the top floor, and the two women were at this place. It looked like an attic. It wasn't even good, not even like a, a decent floor of an apartment building. And they found this woman, this bedridden woman, and there was this smile, so radiant, full of joy. And then you could see that it filled her heart with this joy. And the woman. Woman's room was clean. There were flowers on the windowsill, but still, the wealthy woman couldn't help but to notice the stark surroundings that she was in. And she blurted out, "Man, it must be so difficult for you to live in a place like this." And then the woman that was in the bed responded, "It gets better higher up." She wasn't looking at the temporal things. She had an eye of faith, and her eye was fixated on the eternal. And she found the true secret of life satisfaction and contentment in Christ in the gospel. That is why we, no matter what we face, no matter what circumstance, suffering or hardship, we can find opportunity, and God can turn it into something incredible. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, "Why do the righteous suffer?" And he responded, "Why not? They're the only ones who can take it." We have to also realize God is leading us in a path now. It's not only to be receivers, but to be givers. It's not only to be a guest of the church, but to be a host in the church. It's not only to be served, but finally to start serving. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is something that we do because we see in the gospel there is joy set before us—a joy that the world cannot offer. 
And my question to you now, CGS, is how is God leading you to be a gospel minister right now in your life stage, exactly where you are? How is God leading you to be a gospel minister, to do gospel ministry? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word that you have given us. It's a word that we need because we are bombarded by things that would try to drain hope, make us blind to joy. But Lord God, you remind us of your goodness, your joy. And Lord God, you are your promise. So Lord, at this time, as we reflect on the word, Spirit, won't you speak into our hearts, convict us, change us, and help us to walk out in faith and confidence to do now the work that you have given us. At this time, let's pray and pray that the Holy Spirit will convict your hearts. How is God leading you now to do gospel work, to do gospel ministry? In whatever situation you are in, the Lord is the one who gives us strength to do remarkable things, things that we could not have imagined, but things that can echo even 2,000 years later, just as Paul did with the Galatians. So let's pray.